So this, this weekend, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 44, verses 6 through 18, if you want to turn your Bibles there or uh, on your phones or mobile devices, and uh, we're going to get there in a second. But I was talking with my wife, Erica, who's my best friend, and we just talk about the message that, that God's put on my heart and um, what needs to be said. And um, she was listening. She said, yeah. She said, I think that, that, that that's solid. And um, she said, you know, what's wrong? You just kind of seem like there's something missing. I said, yeah. I said, I feel like I understand the scripture, but I don't know. There's just something that I feel like God wants to say more of. And, and she said, you know, maybe you ought to think about, you've got three, I had three kids all under the age of six. We got our fourth one coming in September. Um, I'll be 67 when that baby's born, uh, graduates from, from uh, high school, unless they flunk and then I'll be older. Uh, but she said, well, what would you tell your children about this topic? And it really made me think for a second, what is it that, because this is probably the most important message that I need to, to share with my children. Because there's a battle raging in this room today in every one of us for, the, for our hearts for our allegiance, which direction we're going to follow and who we're going to worship. And so she said, what would you want your, your kids to know? And I thought to myself, what I would want my kids to know is the greatest battle that they will ever be engaged in is for their hearts. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 says, guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. We see that all the way through the history of Israel, right? This is something that is cyclical. As we studied the story a couple, a couple of years ago here at this church, we went all the way from Genesis to Revelation. My grandpa said his first sermon he preached all the way from generation to revolution in five minutes. It'll take you a second to get that. But he went from the very beginning of the story to the very end of the story. This has been this battle that's been raging. And as you read through the history of the Hebrew people, as you read about their journey starting in the very beginning, there's this cyclical battle that takes place when you get to the nation of Israel. They love God. They've been called by God. Abraham was faithful. And so they, they follow God with all of their hearts. And then they come to the promised land and people begin to move into the air and they've got these newfangled ideas and they've got these new idols that to be worshipped and they want to be part of a culture that's evolving and so they give up their pursuit of the one true living God and they begin to worship idols and they go away from God and then their lives fall apart and they cry out to the Lord who is their God and, and they come back and, and life is good for a while and then they'll begin to be seduced by other idols and other things and other pursuits and pretty soon they find themselves far away from God and they cry out to God again and then God comes and rescues them and it just happens again and again and again because there is a battle raging in the hearts of every person there's a battle raging in the hearts of every person in this room today for your worship, for your heart, for your allegiance. And sometimes it's covert ops, man. SEAL Team 6, Satan is sending in his best to distract you from the goal of what you've been called to. So let me ask you a question as we get into this message today. What is it that you're pursuing today? What is in the preeminent spot of your heart? Who sits on the throne of your heart? And whatever that pursuit is, what are you willing to give up to get it? And that I'll tell you where your battlefield is. And that's what Isaiah is addressing in this passage in Isaiah chapter 44 this morning. He's addressing this battle. 
So let's go ahead and stand and we're going to read this passage of scripture and then uh, we're going to talk about it. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer, the Lord of heaven's armies. I am the first and the last. There is no other God who is like me. Let him step forward and prove to you his power. Let him do as I have done since ancient times when I established a people and explained its future. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim my purposes for you long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any other God? No, there is no other rock, not one. Okay, you may be seated. We'll get into more of it in just a second. So you know that I like to have you be part of uh, an interactive service. That way you can help stay awake in the morning. So I want you to be uh, to talk to the person next to you. I want you to repeat after me as you talk to that person. Are you, are you good with that? Man, you guys are quiet as church mice today. I guess we're in church and I don't know. So here's what I want you to say. I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, there is a God. You are not him. Some of you have been waiting your entire life to say that to the person you're sitting next to this morning. There is a God and you are not him. In his book, The Life You've Always Wanted, John Ortberg uh, relates a story that he read in a book called The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. Now, maybe you don't know this, but Ypsilanti is in Michigan. And um, are there any inter- Wolverines in here today? Um, okay, we'll pray for you after the service. So The Three Christs of Ypsilanti is a book by a psychiatrist by the name of Milton Rokic. Uh, and he says that he was treating three patients who had delusions of grandeur. They believed that they were a Messiah, that God had sent them to the earth to save humankind, the saviors of humanity. Now, he tried to treat them individually, but he had limited success because they could not grasp the concept that they were not God. And so he decided the very best way maybe to treat them was to bring them together, to have them uh, live together so that they would have to be confronted with the fact that there are other people who thought they were the Messiah. And so they would have to begin to, to kind of battle with this idea of who they really were, right? And so he put them in a dorm room together and they would eat together and they'd go to counseling together. And he said, this really kind of brought up some interesting conversations uh, with the folks. He said they'd be sitting in a group talking and one of them would say, I'm the Messiah, the Son of God. I was sent here to save the earth. And Rokich would ask, well, how do you know? And they would respond, God told me. But then one of the other patients would counter, I never told you any such thing. (laughs) There is a God and you are not him. In verses 6 and 7, Isaiah says that the Lord says, I am the first and the last. There is no other God. In the book of Revelation, God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And we know the Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. And Omega is the last letter of the Greek alphabet. And what we learn from this passage in Isaiah and what we understand theologically is what God is saying is that God has encompassed reality. I want you to think about that. He was... There before the creation of the world. He will be there long after history is over. He was there before history was started to be written. He was there before the universe was formed. He has always been. He is uncreated. He is the ancient of days. He predates history. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He is ever-present with you. And here's the great thing about this creator. He cares about you. Your life matters to him. 
Your story matters to Him. Your relationship with Him matters. He has a story for you that He wants to live out. Listen, I know that there are folks in this room today who are struggling with all kinds of things. Who are battling relationships or sickness or sadness or depression or physical limitations or their bank account is not what it needs to be or there's an addiction that has a hold of you. There is all kind of battles being fought in this room today right now. And some of you are wondering if you're going to be able to make it another day. And so... I want you once again to turn to to the person next to you because, listen, this may be the only time that they hear this and, and this may be the most important thing that they hear. I want you to turn to the person next to you and say, God loves you. Now, listen, friends, in Isaiah, he uses three titles. He says that God is Israel's king, which makes sense, right? He established this nation. They had been worshiping him. He wanted to remind them who was at the front of the line. He wanted to remind them who was really in charge. And then he uses the title redeemer. Do you know what a redeemer is? A redeemer is somebody who takes back or buys back something that has been lost. And that's what he was going to do with this nation. And the third one is a military term that he uses. He says he is the Lord of heaven's armies. Listen, friends, that's one of my favorite titles in the Old Testament that God uses for himself. What that means is that he is the head of the, the heavenly host, that he is battling on your behalf because he cares about you. So don't be afraid. Don't tremble with fear. God's got a plan for you. He's got a plan for your life. Hold on to that. Now, we read that God is uncreated. We read that he's always been. But let me help you to understand something. In theology, there are two realms, right? You have the visible universe, which is everything that we see around us. It's where we live. It's the reality that we understand. And then there's the invisible universe. And in the invisible universe are the heavenly realms. That's where the angels reside. That's where the demons reside. It's where the spiritual warfare plays out in a very intense way. And what um, we need to understand about that is this text is telling us that God is uncreated. He's always been. Since the foundations, before the foundations of the world were laid, He was. Every other creation in history is just that, a creation. All of the angels, all of the demons, you, me, even Satan himself is a created being. That's why we know that he will never win the battle because how can a creation destroy the creator? He doesn't have the power, he doesn't have the, the chutzpah, he doesn't have the strength, he doesn't have the precision, he doesn't have the ability to take out God. He can never stand against the creator of all the universe. But what he can do, because God has given each one of us free will, is mess with God's most beloved creation, and that's you. He can battle God for your heart. So we know that we are created. We know that God is uncreated. But the question is, is why we're created? Someone once said the two most important days of your life are the day that you're born and the day that you found out why. Right? Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7. Isaiah chapter 43 is probably one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. Um, 
It tells us why we were created. It says this, bring all who claim me as their God, for I have made them for my glory. It was I who created them. So why were we created? We are created to glorify God. We are created to have a relationship with God. We are created to worship God. We are created to walk with God in the cool of the day. We were created to intimately be involved with our creator. That's why we are created. It's in our DNA. It's in our makeup. It's the way that was planned from the beginning of time to have a relationship with our creator. But the problem is that sin begins to get in our life and it begins to pull us away from our our original intent. And when we choose not to worship God because we were created to worship, we will always try to find something else to put in that place to fill that void. And that's what we're going to talk about in the rest of this passage in Isaiah. This is what it says. How foolish are those who manufacture idols. These prized objects are really worthless. The people who worship idols don't know this, so they are all put to shame. Who but a fool would make his own God an idol that cannot help him one bit? All who worship idols will be disgraced along with all these craftsmen, mere humans, who claim that they can make a God. They may all stand together, but they will stand in terror and shame. The blacksmith stands at his forge to make a sharp tool, pounding and shaping it with all his might. He wor- his work makes him hungry and weak. It makes him thirsty and faint. Then the woodcarver measures a block of wood and draws a pattern on it. He works with chisel and plane and carves it into a human figure. He gives it human beauty and puts it in a little shrine. He cuts down cedars. He selects the cypress and the oak. He plants the pine in the forest to be nourished by the rain. Then he uses part of the wood to make a fire. With it, he warms himself and he bakes his bread. Then, yes, it's true. He takes the rest of it and makes himself a god to worship. He makes an idol and bows down in front of it. He burns part of the tree to roast his meat and to keep himself warm. And he says, ah, that fire feels good. Then he takes what's left and makes his God a carved idol. He falls down in front of it, worshiping and praying to it. Rescue me, he says. You are my God. Such stupidity and ignorance. Their eyes are closed and they cannot see. Their minds are shut. And they cannot think. Seems silly, doesn't it? How we do these type of things. Now, why would anyone ever choose to worship someone that they, something that they had created with their own hands? I mean, that passage when it says they make this idol and then they cry out to it, save me, save me, is so ridiculous. Now, I told you I have three kids under the age of six and one on the way in September. And, and here's the deal. I have a two, uh, my son will be two in ten days, nine days. And um, they, my kids have been on this crazy kick for pancakes lately. It doesn't matter if it's breakfast. It doesn't matter if it's uh, lunch or dinner. They, they want pancakes. And so my wife makes these pancakes and they just go to town on them, love them. So the other day for lunch, she made these pancakes and she put... Uh, three more on the table for the kids to eat and they got done and there were still three pancakes on the table She was cleaning up and she walked out of the room and she came back and they were missing She thought what in the world happened to these pancakes and so she went on this little tour and she walked over to the tv And there's my son laying on the floor with the pancakes under his head and he was taking a nap At least you know they're fluffy, right? 
Now, how ridiculous would it be if my son who was laying on these pancakes and they were being used as a pillow would wake up and decide, hey, I'm hungry. And he started eating these pancakes and he thought, wow, this, these pancakes have met two of my essential needs. I mean, I was given rest because of the fluffiness of these pancakes. And now I have been fed on the innermost parts of my soul by these pancakes. I need to worship these pancakes. But that's what we do. When we don't want to worship God, we will find something else to worship because we were created to worship. It's in our DNA. It's who we are. We have, we must, because of the way that we are built, find something to fill that void. And sometimes it's out of silliness like the pancakes. Sometimes it's just out of stubbornness. God tells us, this is the way I want you to live. This is the way I want to have a relationship with you. This is what you must do. This is what you must not do. Hey, I love you. I want to have a better life. You're like, no, 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 God. That's not the way I want to live. That's not what I want for my life. I don't agree with you. I think you're wrong. Even though you knit me together in my mother's womb. Even though you created me from the beginning of time. Even though you've got a plan marked out for me. You're wrong, God. And I choose not to worship you. And so I'm going to find someone else to worship. So that they can do what I tell them to do. Or that my life can look more like I want it to look like. There's a story in, in Exodus chapter 32 that's really fascinating. It's about um, the children of Israel. The Hebrews have just left Egypt. They've just left 400 years of slavery and bondage. God has showed up in an amazing way. Now they're at Mount Sinai. And Moses goes up onto the mountain. He's gone for a little bit. And you remember that his brother, Aaron, has been his mouthpiece, right? He's the one that had spoken to the Pharaoh of Egypt. He'd been next to his brother all along the way. And um, they had been a team. Well, now Moses has gone up to talk with God on Mount Sinai. He's been gone for a while. The children of Israel have kind of been drumming their figure, uh, fingers on their uh, walking staffs. And they begin to get a little anxious. I mean, you can't really blame them, right? They've been slaves all their lives. They grew up seeing Egyptians worship idols. Then there were lots of them. Uh, they were followers of the one true God, but he kind of had ghosted them to this point. And so they want to move. They were impatient. They're afraid. They're unsure. They knew that every other culture had physical, tangible idols to worship. And so they asked Aaron, Moses's brother, hey, you need to do something about this. Now, just as a refresher for a moment, these are the same people that had seen God decimate, decimate the idols of Egypt. In fact, one of the things we don't often think about during the story of the plagues of Egypt is that when God brings the plagues, they are, are a direct confrontation to the Egyptian idols to see who is more powerful. And every time God kicked their butt, I think that's in the Hebrew they had seen God do those things. They had a front row seat to God parting the waters of the Red Sea. They had seen the walls of water on either side of them as they walked through on dry land to the other side. And then they had seen God bring down these walls of water onto the greatest army of the world at that time. The Egyptian army destroying it and giving them freedom. They had seen all of that. But fear, anxiety, the threat of a changed reality or a desire to fit into a contrary culture wrecks havoc on our souls and our allegiance and our hearts. And so they said to Aaron, maybe Moses is dead. I mean, he's been gone a long time. He was kind of old anyway. Well, does someone want to go up on the mountain to, to check it out? 
Not me. You want to go? I'm not going. How about you? I got to go to the bathroom. I'm out, buddy. And so they say to Aaron, you know what? Let's, we haven't seen God in a while. Moses is kind of the guy that talked to him. Maybe we should make our own God so that he'll do what we want him to do and we can bow down to that God. And so they did. They chose to make a golden calf. Now, I've never gotten, I probably should research this more because they were shepherds and they're all about sheep and they make an idol of a cow. I don't know why. Maybe it's because they're thinking of that song. I want to move it, move it. (laughs) Joe, that's for you, wherever you are. (laughs) About this time, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai with Ten Commandments. Anybody remember the first of the Ten Commandments is? You shall have no... Other gods before me. Old Moses is walking down the, the, the mountain with these two Ten Commandments. And the very first thing he sees is the Hebrew people breaking the first commandment. Even before he's able to give them to him. So Moses goes to his brother Aaron that, that's kind of leading the parade here. And he just goes crazy. He goes off on Aaron. What are you doing? And Aaron just goes stupid. This is what he says. I just wanted you to see it because it's in Scripture and it's amazing to me. Aaron says to Moses, do not be angry, my Lord. Aaron answered, you know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. And then they gave me the gold and I threw it into the fire. And out came this calf. It's amazing. It's a miracle. I just threw gold in there and boom, here we were with this this golden calf. You know why Aaron said that to his brother? Because no one wants to be thought of as an idolater. No one wants to admit that they have a problem. No one wants to admit that there is a battle for the preeminent spot of their heart's throne. No one wants to say that there's a challenger for God in my life. You see, the real problem isn't a statue in a temple. It's an idol in the heart. Proverbs 4.23 said, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Friends, idolatry is when I take anything that isn't God and put it in the place where God belongs. And the saddest part of idolatry is that we take good things, gifts that God has given to us, and we put them in a higher place than they were ever intended to be. Things like money and work and power and even love. And we make it an idol by giving it our ultimate devotion. When anything but God becomes the priority of our life, it's taken the place of God in our life. Paul described it this way. He says, like people exchange the truth of God... That there is one God for a lion worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. And so I have a question for you today. Where is your confidence? What have you placed your confidence in in your life? Because if it's your bank account, if it's your career, it's your abilities, it's your knowledge. If it's in relationships, your good looks, your personality, your health. Friends, it's not going to be enough. It's not going to carry you through the day because someday all of those things will be taken away from you or will fade away. Jesus said a long time ago, the wise man built his house upon the rock. 
Remember that song we sang when we were little? The wise men built his house upon the rock. The wise men built his... Come on, sing with me. The wise men built his house upon the rock. And I don't remember the rest of the song. But I do remember this. The wise men built himself a house on the rock. And when the winds and the rains came, the house stood strong. Not because of the house itself, because of the foundation. And then I remember that there was a foolish man and he built his house upon what? Now, obviously he wasn't from Florida or he would have known that you can't build your house upon the sand because the sands are shifting and they move and the foundation is not solid and the foundation is not strong. And when the winds and the rains and the hurricanes come, the house will be destroyed. And so where are you going to build your house? Where are you going to place your, place your faith? And Isaiah uses the same imagery. There is, is there any other God? No, there is no other what? Come on now. There is no other what? There is no other rock. Not one. A couple of years ago, when I first got here, we brought in a guy by the name of Michael Franzese. Anybody remember Michael? Uh, he's a former mafia boss. If you want to hear his testimony, it's still online. You can go check it out. But I was never really interested in the mob because I was from the Midwest, right? We don't have mafia there, only the Amish mafia, and it's way different. <laughs> but Michael Franzese was the real deal. He was a capital regime or a captain in the Colombo crime family. Uh, he was what they call an earner. And so in 1984, he got involved in this uh, gas tax embezzlement thing. And you may not sound like it, it would bring in a lot of money, but they were actually, Michael was bringing in for his family, the Colombo family, in 1984, almost $10 million a week from this tax this gas tax business he'd give two million to the family and he would keep the rest for himself to pay off the people he needed to pay off in today's dollars you know how much money that is that'd be like him making 20 million dollars a week and giving 16 of it or four of it away and keeping 16 for himself to run his business this dude was such a well-respected earner in the life that when Fortune magazine uh, made a list of the 50 of the most wealthy and powerful mafia bosses, at the age of 35, Michael Franzese was listed as number 18. You want to talk about having all that this life has to offer, all of the things that we think that are important that we want. At the time, he owned two car dealerships, a private jet, a helicopter. He had three homes, one in New York, one in Florida, and one in California. And he owned a movie company outside of his dealings with the mafia. He had everything that the world tells us that we need to be happy. He had power and money and women and fame and people feared him and they respected him. And he could walk into any room and he would be the guy, almost any room. And the idol in his heart said, this is what's real. This is what's tangible. This is what makes you a man. But 1985, Michael Franzese was indicted on 14 counts of racketeering, counterfeiting, and extortion from his gasoline bootlegging racket. In 1986, Franzese pleaded guilty to two counts. He was sentenced to 10 years in federal prison, and he was told he had to um, pay $14 million in restitution payments. He served eight years in federal jail. 
federal prison and he was put in solitary confinement or the hole for 29 months and seven days. He said, when you're in solitary confinement, you count the days, not the years. That means he was in a six by eight cell, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. He was let out two times a week to shower. And every day he had five hours that he could walk in the yard, but he said you would go out and he said you were totally encompassed by a a, a metal cage. It was like being in a dog cage. Man who had everything, lost everything, everything that was important to him. Now he could go back to that life if he wanted to, he could rebuild it. But as he would say later on, every person that he entered the mafia with with, is either dead or in prison for life. And he realized it was all just shifting sand. It was all things that didn't really matter. It was during that time in solitary confinement when a prison guard came in and gave him a Bible and Michael took the Bible and he threw it against the wall. It was the last thing he wanted to hear. But as he began to read through what the, the word of God said, it began to change his life. And he discovered that his life had been based on shifting sand that wasn't important, that wasn't eternal. And that the thing that he really needed to base his life on was the rock. And so in prison, he gives his life to the Lord Jesus Christ and he forsakes the mafia. He forsakes that way of life because he knew that it would only bring him to ruin just like every other idol that we put in the preeminent place in our hearts. And he said, I don't want that life anymore. I want to live my life for Jesus. And he is the only man that has walked away from the mafia and lived. Now, later on, his dad would agree to put a hit on his life. His dad would agree to put a hit on his life. But it didn't matter. Because he understood that the thing, the most important thing to worship in his life was not money, power, fame, terror, fear. It was Jesus. Friends, I don't know where you are today, but I know that God knows. There's a battle that's going on in your heart this very moment between the Lord of heaven's armies and the enemy of humanity, the father of all lives. And he's going to take a lot of shiny objects and he's going to put them in front of you. And he's going to say, hey, listen, forget about God. He doesn't know what he's talking about. He says that you have to live by these crazy rules. That's contrary to our culture. You lived according to what I tell you and I will give you the desires of your heart. Man, that boat, that car, that that. That reputation, the money, the love, the whatever it is that you're chasing, I will give those things to you if you will just walk away from him. Listen to me. And like I said, sometimes they're not bad things in of themselves. Money has created missionaries and, and opened the world to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in more countries than you can imagine. God uses wealthy people throughout the Bible to change the world. Phoebe in, um, in one of the towns that, that Paul goes to says, you know what, I'm going to, she was a wealthy businesswoman. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open my home to become the first church in this area. People who have found love in the right context have been blessed beyond measure, not because of the love itself, but because that's the way that God created us. And it's a blessing not to be worshipped as an idol. And you can go down the line with every good gift that God gives you and say, yes, that is a gift from God. But when we elevate it from a giftedness that God has given us into the place of the highest honor, we have gone from being blessed by God to making an idol out of something that was never meant to be worshipped in that way. And I know that people are dealing with addictions in here. 
They're dealing with heartache. They're dealing with relational disaster. They're dealing with um, insecurity. They're dealing with financial problems. You're dealing with aging. You're dealing with health problems. And there's this battle. Who am I going to trust? What am I going to sell my life for? Now, every one of us has a decision to make today. Who will we put on the throne of our hearts? Uh, I'd like to ask you a question. On the count of three, I just want you to... Anybody in here like movies? I I love movies. I'm a movie junkie. Um, On the count of three, would you just yell out the greatest movie ever made? Ready? One, two, three. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. You guys agree with me. Listen, came out in 1989. I realize that half of the people in this room probably have no idea who Indiana Jones is, which is a shame. I think we should pray for your parents after the service today. Indiana Jones is an intrepid archaeologist who travels all over the world finding lost things. Now, in his movies, he finds some of the most incredible things in the history of humanity, right? In the first one, he finds the Ark of the Covenant. Amazing. And the last one, not the last one that, that really doesn't count, the last one that was made in 1989 was he finds the Holy Grail. It's the search for the cup that held the blood of Christ. Now, it's this battle. Remember, all these movies are set in the 1930s and 40s. He's battling against the Nazis who want to find the Holy Grail for evil purposes. And Indiana Jones is looking to save it. Now, of course, in every movie, Indiana Jones has some love interest. In this case, it's an Australian archaeologist by the name of Elsa. Long before um, she became popular in the movie, um, you guys know what I'm talking about. Elsa, though, has kind of got blurred lines when it comes to allegiance, right? She'll work with the Nazis if it gets her the grail. She'll work with Indiana Jones if it gets her the grail. Well, in the movie, they eventually find this cave and Indiana Jones and the Nazis are there and there's this big battle scene kind of. His dad is injured. His dad is Sean Connery. I mean, how much better does it get, right? So he has to go in and and face these trials to find the girl. He finds the girl. Elsa is with him. There's this big battle when he gets out. Elsa picks up the, the grail in the midst of it and she's backing up. And the, the crusader that they met, I mean, this dude is like 10 centuries old. And he's like, don't, you can never take the grail from this place or God will bring an earthquake. And they're like, yeah, 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 whatever. We want to get the grail. And so she begins to back out and she says, Indy, I've got the, I've got the grail. Come on, it can be just you and me forever. Literally forever, right? Because the grail keeps you alive. So anyway... As she's backing up, this earthquake happens. Everybody falls down. The grail falls. It starts to go in between a crack in the the ground. She dives for it. And she doesn't get it. But Indiana grabs her hand just as she dives. And she's hanging on to his hand. And and she's like, Indy, I can almost reach it. And she's like, Elsa, let it go. I can't hold on to you, Elsa. And she's like, no, I can almost get the grail. I can almost reach it. He's like, I can't hold on to you, Elsa. You're going to fall to your death if you don't. Look up here and, and allow me to pull you. And she's like, no, I can almost reach it. And then she slips out of his hand and falls to her death. And as she falls, Indiana reaches for her. He falls over the edge and his dad grabs his hand. And Indiana Jones can literally touch the Holy Grail. And his dad is like, Junior, I can't hold on. 
you need to give me your other hand. And he's like, dad, I can touch the grail. I can almost get the grail. And he says, junior, you must listen to me. He's like, no, dad, I can almost get it. This has been your lifelong pursuit. I can grab this. And then in one of the great moments in cinematic history, Sean Connery says, Indiana, which is part of the reason I love the movie, give me your hand. And when his father's voice cuts through his fascination with the grail, he turns away from that which is going to cause him great harm in his life, and he turns back to his father, and his life is saved. My friends, you have a choice to make today. Whatever you're pursuing that's pulling you away, or the voice of your father. Which are you going to listen to this morning? Which voice are you going to respond to? Let's pray. God, I just thank you so much for the way that you love us. We pray right now, God, that you would help us in whatever battles we find ourselves. Lord, we just ask that um, you would reset our hearts. That our the eyes of our hearts would see clearly who we were created to worship and what we need to do to get there. Lord, we know that there's no idol that can save us or bring us happiness or bring us joy or offer us eternal life, that only you, the uncreated, can do that. So God, help us to turn our eyes back to you. Help us to give up what it is that we're pursuing and help us to run after you with every fiber of our being. We love you, Jesus. We're so grateful for you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.